Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 15. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 924. And today we're going to read verses 19 through 35. But before we do, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that faith comes through hearing. Hearing comes through the Word of God. Father, I pray that you would speak to your people this morning through your Word. In spite of the broken vessel that is bringing it this morning. Feed your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Acts 15, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among whom uh, from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria In Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. One thing we've seen as we've made our way through the book of Acts is that the church is growing. It's expanding. It began in Jerusalem, but it's going out. Uh, It began with Jews in Jerusalem, but then it goes to people like the Ethiopian eunuch and Cornelius and Sergius Paulus. It began in Jerusalem, but now it's going to cities like Antioch 
and Lystra and Derby, and there are churches planted there. And what's happening is that as the gospel begins to go further and further, there start to be a lot of believers who don't look like the Christians in Jerusalem. Lots of people coming into the church who are coming from different backgrounds and traditions and customs. These Gentile Christians, they're coming out of paganism. They're unfamiliar with Old Testament scriptures, unfamiliar with Judaism. They're saved, to be sure. They're forgiven, but they're coming from a very different place. And these people do not look and act and sound like the Jerusalem Christians. And so we saw two weeks ago, what begins to happen is that Christians coming from a Jewish background begin to tell these Christians coming from the Gentile background that if you're going to be a believer, you have to be like us. If you're going to be a member of the household of faith in good standing, you have to change and mirror us. Very specifically, they were saying, we can look back and see in verse 1 and verse 5 of chapter 15, they were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then in verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. So you have Jewish Christians telling these Gentiles, if you really want to be saved, you have got to be circumcised. Or If you want to remain saved, you must keep the law of Moses, right? You see what they're doing. They're saying your faith in Christ alone is not sufficient. If you want to be a true believer and you want to stay a true believer, there are other things you must do. A couple weeks ago, we we talked, we've, we've seen this before, have all of us. We've all seen this. Maybe uh, you've been a part of a church where it was taught that if you want to be saved and go to heaven, then you must be baptized. If you want to be saved and to go to heaven, you must be a member of this particular church or this particular denomination. We've all heard things like, I'm saved by the grace of God, but I remain saved by doing what's right. You know, how many times have we heard... Someone say, God did his part, now I have to do mine. It's this idea of getting into the kingdom through grace, but remaining in the kingdom by what we do or don't do. Now, I know that's something we're all familiar with, which means we're also probably familiar with what believing this makes us into. What does... What do we become when we believe this? One option, I think, is we become neurotic and anxious. We're worried we haven't done enough and that when we die, we will be one of those to whom Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And so we're trying really hard and hoping that we've done enough to never ever hear those words. We want to display our Christian proof of purchase to prove that we're a believer. 
That's one option. The other is to become prideful and feel that we have done enough. We have proved to the world our Christian proof of purchase. Just look at our discipline and our our zeal and our self-sacrifice and our hunger for knowledge. And this makes us feel safe. It may also cause us to look down on others who are weaker. And you think these other Christians need to become more like me. That's what's happening here. The Jewish Christians are telling the Gentiles, in order for God to accept you, you have to become more like us. And that means the men and boys have to get circumcised and all of you have to keep the law of Moses. And so the Jerusalem Council is called to respond to this question. Do non-Jewish believers have to meet these requirements? And what was the answer we saw two weeks ago? No. No, these non-Jewish believers do not have to submit to these requirements. James says in verse 19, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. We aren't going to trouble them with these things. Now, why? Is it, just, is it just not important? They come to this decision because they all understand one of the foundational truths of Christianity. That faith alone and not works of the law is what justifies a Christian. You know, Paul will write at the same time. So the letter of Galatians that took place at the same time, same issue going on. And Paul writes in Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So let's do quickly define some terms. I don't want to assume anything. Justification, justified, means a gracious act of God whereby all your sins are pardoned and you are accepted as righteous in God's sight because of the perfect righteousness and obedience of Jesus that has been credited to you. And we receive this by faith. Okay, that's justification. What about faith? Faith is simply this. Acknowledging your own unrighteousness And then looking to Christ as your righteousness. Finding all your hope outside of yourself in him and who he is and what he has done. Faith, the reformer said, was extra nos. Who knows Latin? Extra nos. Outside of one's self. My hope, my security, my righteousness is not found in me. It is found in him. It is outside of me. That's saving faith. And that's what justifies the believer. Not strict religious, or not strict faithful uh, religious adherence uh, to the law of Moses or any other list of rules. That's what the council upholds. But then James does something 
that might throw us for a loop. So you've got this, this grand defense of justification by faith alone. And then in verse 20, uh, we get somewhat of a curveball. James says in verse 19, My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But, but verse 20, let's write a letter. Let's write a letter to the primarily Gentile church in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. And in that letter, let's give four stipulations. And you can see them in verse 20 and verse 29. These four things. Number one, abstain from things polluted by idols. Number two, from sexual immorality. Three, from what has been strangled. And number four, from blood. So what do we do with this? Uh, The whole time we've seen the council on the same page, we are not going to force the Gentiles to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. But here James is saying that there are four things you need to abstain from. Uh, we, We might think for a moment that James is giving with one hand and taking away with another. Here's the point I think James is making. Unity. Unity in the body of Christ. Unity between Jewish converts and Gentile converts. Verse 21 tells us that there are synagogues and Jewish communities in all of these towns. Which means none of these churches that are listed are going to be 100% Gentile. There will be Jews mixed in with them. And James is writing these heavily Gentile churches and saying, for the sake of fellowship, for the sake of fellowship with these brothers and sisters coming from Jewish backgrounds, abstain from these things. In order to maintain peace, in order to live well together, in order to share table fellowship, abstain from these things. James is not giving them four new requirements for salvation. He's thinking about unity and peace in the church. So let's, let's talk about these, and we'll begin with the food items. You've got food polluted by idols, and you see later it's uh, described food sacrificed to idols. Uh, from what has been strangled, meaning uh, an animal that was killed without draining the blood, And then number three, from blood, from eating uh, blood. I know some of you like your steaks this way. And we have to acknowledge uh, how privileged we are to live in the time in which we live. Uh, We've got modern medicine. We've got heated and air-conditioned homes. We have cars. And uh, we have meat on the table for most meals. You know, if you live in the United States in the year 2022, pretty much the only people who do not eat meat do so by choice are vegans and vegetarians. They choose not to eat meat. But for pretty much all Americans, meat is readily available. We could have meat at every meal if we wanted to. We could do uh, the carnivore diet. That was not the case in the first century. Christians would have to jump at meat when they had the opportunity. It was, it, it was a luxury. 
And for Christians in Antioch and elsewhere, uh, when they were able to get their hands on meat, uh, it, was, it was a treat. And so uh, the way it would work, very often you'd have a pagan priest ministering in a pagan temple. He would make a sacrifice uh, to one of the idols there. And they would kill the animal, lay it out before the idol. And then after their rituals were performed, they would take uh, the animal away because obviously idols cannot consume meat. They just sit there. And so they would take the animal away, butcher it, and then sell the meat in the local market to make some income for themselves in the temple. So that's what we're talking about here. And uh, John Doe, member of... Uh, Antioch Church might be walking home, pass through the market, see a certain cut of steak that had been butchered earlier that day, and think, hey, it's just meat. I'm going to buy it, take it home, cook it, eat it, and it didn't bother his conscience at all. And that night, he and his family would enjoy medium-rare ribeye and think nothing of it. But here's the rub. If he had friends over for dinner, and those friends happened to be converted Jews, if, if he told his guests exactly what they were eating, it could present an issue. Because for so long, for their whole lives, every meal, they'd strictly adhered to a certain diet, one that excluded certain things, namely these things on the list. And to serve them this food, or to really even eat it in front of them, would have been an offense. It would have bothered their conscience. They saw it as polluted. James describes that in verse 20. Food polluted by idols. It, it would have offended them to serve, it, it would have offended them to serve this to them. And so James says, for the sake of fellowship, for the sake of unity. Don't eat these things. Now, we see elsewhere in Scripture that eating food sacrificed to idols in and of themselves is not sinful. The Christian has freedom there. It's not sinful to eat a rare steak where you still have blood. It's not uh, sinful um, uh, to eat these things. But what is wrong is to refuse uh, to lay down a freedom and cause disunity. You know, as, as I was thinking through this issue, one of, I think, the most applicable examples today is alcohol, isn't it? Um, you think of alcohol, a uh, drink that can be enjoyed with moderation and self-control, nothing wrong with it. But for some of our brothers and sisters, for any number of reasons, their consciences uh, are burdened, and so they choose not to drink. And so when we are with them, we abstain for the sake of unity and fellowship and peace. Paul talks about this in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8. We abstain out of love and respect, accommodating the sensitivities of our brothers and sisters. I think that's a good parallel of what we have 
here. And before we get to the fourth thing, the sexual immorality prohibition, it's interesting to note that James doesn't mention pork. You'd think he would have mentioned pork. But if you remember, the whole reason of the council was we are not forcing the Gentiles to become good Jews. We aren't forcing them to keep the law of Moses. And so we aren't going to force them to not eat pork as well. The point is uh, brotherly relationships and fellowship and peace. Now, on to the fourth point. I'm going to be honest, this is a tad confusing. Uh, The fourth point, James says, is to abstain from sexual immorality. And it's a tad confusing because you have uh, this very clear violation of the law of God uh, in a list with, uh, with these other uh, prohibitions. The word here for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. If it sounds uh, familiar to you, you know why. Um, you could translate this as fornication as well as sexual immorality. And it really, I've heard it described as a, drunk, a, a junk drawer term. Um, I think we all have junk drawers at home that you can really just put it. You might open it up and find all kinds of stuff in it. Uh, This is a a junk drawer term um, for sexual immorality. A a, uh, term that points to uh, sexual acts outside of a husband and wife in the confines and covenant of marriage. And so sexual immorality is always wrong. It never changes. God's law does not change. It's always wrong to steal. It's always wrong to murder. It's always wrong to commit adultery. This isn't news. And so maybe uh, James is writing this uh, because sexual immorality was more prevalent in Gentile communities. It's more normalized. Uh, Mores were different than Jewish communities. And so maybe, maybe that's why. But there's also another reason I think that's, that's more interesting. And it's that when you think about the previous three things on the list, they were all connected in some way to pagan worship. Eating blood, eating meat that hadn't been drained of blood, eating a piece of meat that had once laid on a pagan altar. That's why these things were offensive to the Jewish Christians. While we're on the subject of pagan worship, what else happened in pagan worship? Sexual immorality, religious prostitution, temple prostitution. So maybe the sexual immorality that James specifically has in mind is a kind that would take place in one of these pagan temples, which is another reason the Jews would not want to eat meat from such a place. So it's a bit tricky. Uh, Maybe he's tying this to pagan worship. Maybe there are some Gentile relationships that would offend Jews. But the motivation here is to strengthen the bond of unity between these believers. And if they abstain from these four things, it will do much for the purity and peace of the church. And as we read in verse 31, abstaining from these three things was something they were happy 
to do. Now, with that theme of unity and purity and peace in mind, here's what I want to do with the time I've got left. We've talked about justification, and now I want to talk about sanctification. We've seen that we are not saved by works of the law, um, but what about sanctification? What does the rest of the Christian life look like? James is not telling us how the believer is saved, uh, but he's teaching something important about living the Christian life, about serving our brothers and sisters in Christ, considering their needs above your own. He points to the importance of fellowshipping and sitting around a table and eating together, the importance of Christian community. And so I want you to think, if I was to ask you to make a list of what sanctification looks like, how do we grow as Christians, what would you say? You might think, am I, am I developing as a Christian? Is my life going better? Am I, am I fighting sin? Am I in the scriptures? Am I practicing spiritual disciplines? Are my affections being found more and more in the things of God? Maybe that's kind of in the ballpark what you were thinking. But I would challenge you to think about this. That sounds like a sanctification that is all about you. Your progress. What does your life look like? But I want to challenge you this morning to think about it a different way. Think about sanctification the way Scripture describes it. Sanctification is not turning inward on yourself and being consumed with your spiritual growth and your spiritual disciplines. Sanctification is about turning outward to others. Martin Luther famously said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Your neighbor needs your good works. Your neighbor needs your love. Your neighbor needs your sacrifice. And this is opposite to how we normally think of the Christian life, isn't it? The way we normally think is that our sanctification exists primarily for ourselves. Our improvement, our moral betterment, our confidence before the Lord. And you know, if that also benefits our neighbors and our family and our coworkers, wonderful. But I'm convinced Scripture says something different. That our sanctification is not for us, but it's for others. And I'll give you some examples from, from Scripture. In Ephesians, Paul begins the letter with rich wonderful doctrine concerning our salvation. And then in the second half of the chapter, beginning in chapter four, he begins to focus on how we live. And uh, what does he say? He's about to give a list of things the Christian is to do. He says to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What's on that list? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with 
one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice all those things are done in the context of others, being in community with people. There is an outward focus. You're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. All these things sanctify us and our neighbors need them. Here's another example, 1 Corinthians 13. How many of you had 1 Corinthians 13 read at your wedding? Probably a lot of us. 1 Corinthians 13 isn't a wedding text. It's not about the love between a husband and his wife. 1 Corinthians 13 is about love in the church. And Paul begins 1 Corinthians 13 by saying you can have all the gifts, you can have strong faith, you can have knowledge, you can be passionate and zealous, you can give everything away, you can even die for the gospel. You can do all that. But if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's all meaningless. And I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 13. I'm sure you've heard this before. This is familiar, verses 4 through 7. But as I read it, I don't want you to picture your sweetheart. I want you to picture the men and women and boys and girls in this room. Because that's what this text is about. Okay? Picture each other. Right? It gives it a whole different spin, doesn't it? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How are we sanctified? By loving one another without envying and boasting. We're sanctified by practicing patience and kindness to one another. We're sanctified by not insisting on our own way. We're sanctified by bearing one another's burdens. I'll give you another example. Galatians 5, the very end of Galatians 5 Uh, into chapter 6. Paul writes, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, just on the fly. If if I'm asking you, how do you live by the Spirit? What would you say? I would probably turn inward. Look at myself. How am I doing? Am I reading my Bible? Am Am I praying enough? What does Paul say? Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's a picture of sanctification. You notice a pattern here. These good works that God has prepared for us are aimed at how we live in the community of the church. One more, Philippians 2. I'm just going to read it. 
Now, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. See, the Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation where it's just you and the Lord and your Bible. The Christian life is meant to be lived in community, in the local church, where we have the opportunities to forgive one another and to be patient with one another and consider the needs of others. God grows his people as we worship together, as we come together week after week and sit under his word and Go to his table and pray together and sing together. And we do that week after week, year after year. And the Lord uses those simple means to do incredible things. To change us and grow us as we pour ourselves into the local church and give ourselves away for the good of others. God wants to use you for the good of others. And he wants to use others for good in your life. And you know, when we understand that, I think we'll better understand the reaction the Gentiles had to this letter. When they read this letter, we are told that they rejoiced because of its encouragement. God would grow them. God would transform them. And he would do so by considering the needs of others, by the church being the church. Let's pray. Father God, it is so easy for our eyes to fixate on ourselves and our performance and our faithfulness and our discipline or the lack thereof. Father, I pray that you would turn our eyes outwards. And we see in this example in the text that James uh, does not send a letter to the churches telling them to uh, go off into monasteries and solitary confinement and to be introspective and only uh, think of themselves, but to join together to be in community, to sit at table and share meals together, uh, to do life with one another. Father, I pray that by your grace, uh, you would enable us uh, to do the same. Those good works that you have prepared for us from before the foundation of the world are not for us, they're for your people. So Father, would you make us a blessing to one another so that the outside watching world would wonder and that the name of Christ would be extolled as great. We ask in his name. Amen.